This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we just the other night watched the movie Talk to Me. Mm, Yes, we are just wrapping up our... October scary movie Halloween advent calendar time. And I have to say that that movie is the first movie in a a long time that literally, literally made me jump out of my seat. What what part made you jump out of your seat? Can you tell me without spoilers? I I don't think I should, but yeah, it it had to do with... uh, with a dead body. We'll leave it at that. But it's it's a really well shot movie. It's beautifully shot, in fact. The story's engaging. It's more of a supernatural thriller as opposed to like a slasher film. Um, and it had a very satisfying ending, I thought. Uh, yeah, I didn't think it was particularly scary, but it was definitely... Um, it made me feel very anxious and there was a lot of tension and there were some genuinely upsetting parts. There was one part where we had to pause it and uh, you had to take a, a little bit of a break. Mm, yeah, and I went I, to do some dishes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, good, I'll take advantage of this to uh, calm myself down so that uh, she doesn't know that I'm more scared than she is. Yeah, you could have helped do the dishes is all I'm saying. I do my share of the dishes. <laughs> I really liked it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again, but I liked it. And it's kind of interesting. I think this was uh, a film that was made in Australia, or at least it took place in Australia, Mm -hmm. and it featured Australian actors, Mm -hmm. and there were kangaroos in it. My story originates not far from Australia. My story begins in New Zealand. Okay. And I have to warn you, this is grim. Oh, very grim. So trigger warning, it involves a lot of graphic information about a terribly tragic event that took place. Okay. It was on November 28th, 1979. A tragic event unfolded over the icy expanse of Antarctica, and it would go down as the deadliest in New Zealand's aviation history. Air New Zealand Flight 901 
which was a sightseeing journey that promised passengers unparalleled views of the Antarctic landscape ended in catastrophe when the plane crashed and uh, 257 lives were lost. Now, throughout the 70s, the allure of the remote continent of Antarctica had drawn tourists, uh, leading to the idea, the inception of a long day sightseeing flight uh, from New Zealand. These were pretty common flights, sightseeing flights. The excursions offered impressive vistas and features like the the uh, Ross Ice Shelf. That's hard to say. The Ross, Ross Ice, Ice shelf. shelf. But of course, there are risks due to challenging flying conditions over the Antarctic terrain. Well, that fateful flight was originally designed as a unique experience to delight the senses of the adventurous. It featured an Antarctic guide who, on occasion, was Sir Edmund Hillary, of all people. Wow. And he was scheduled to be the guide on this flight, but had to cancel at the last moment. And his friend Peter Mulgrew took his place. I have a question. Yes. Okay, so what year was this? 1979. What year did Edmund Hillary die? Hey, Siri. What year did Edmund Hillary die? Edmund Hillary died January 11th, 2008 at age 88 in Auckland City. What? You know, this is a great example of how sometimes my brain does not timeline things right. Like, in my brain, Edmund Hillary, I mean, he was much earlier than 2008. Yeah, yeah, he, he was around for a while. But he didn't go on this flight. He canceled last minute. So his friend Peter Mulgrew filled in. I was in college. The flight departed Auckland International Airport at 8 a.m. The DC-10 was scheduled for a brief stop at uh, Christchurch before completing its journey back to Auckland uh, later that evening. It was a one-day trip. It was 359 New Zealand dollars back in 1979, which is about three grand today per passenger. And this excursion had been made many times successfully, but the vast ice plains of Antarctica are unforgiving, offering no visual cues for navigation in some instances. And that was the case on this day. It was a combination of poor visibility and a critical error in the flight profile that led to this disaster. Well, I imagine because, I mean, the the tundra, the terrain there is probably uh, largely pale in color and then the sky is probably pretty pale in color yeah and then there is that when you're flying up and down is very important but you don't it must be flying like it must be like flying through cool whip it probably is very similar to that i would think because (laughs) it was difficult for the pilots not just in this case but in many cases to determine where the clouds stopped and where the snow-covered mountains began right or just the tundra. The pilots were unfamiliar with Antarctic conditions, and they were misled by incorrect data that had caused uh, no issues in previous flights that had good visibility. But the combination of poor visibility and this incorrect data uh, was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, just because you're good at flying in New Zealand 
doesn't mean that you're, I mean, and it doesn't mean that you're not good at flying in Antarctica. It just means you're not familiar with the particulars of flying in Antarctica. Right. And the crew of this particular flight, they were extremely experienced aviators. They just had no experience flying in this particular region. I mean, it makes perfect sense that those are two different things. As the aircraft descended to provide passengers a clearer view below the cloud cover, the pilots were unaware that they were approaching Mount Erebus, Uh. a 12,444-foot volcano. They thought they were flying safely above the flat expanse of uh, McMurdo. But they were just flying directly into the side of a mountain. At 1249, the ground proximeter warning system began its urgent re-alert with a chilling... Did you say re-alert? Maybe I did. (laughs) The ground proximity warning system began its urgent alert with the chilling whoop, whoop, pull up alarm. The cockpit voice recorder captured the final futile attempts to avert the looming disaster. In the last seconds of the uh, recording, you could hear the plane colliding with the volcano at a speed of 300 miles per hour. And then nothing. The United States Navy reported at 2 p.m. that the flight failed to respond to radio calls. By 9 p.m., Air New Zealand had to face the grim reality that the plane was lost. The debris was spotted on the side of Mount Erebus at 9 a.m. the next day, and uh, the devastating confirmation came. There were no survivors. Oh. The crash resulted in all 257 individuals aboard, 237 tourists, and a crew of 20. Amidst the tragedy, 16 victims remained unidentified, and the whereabouts of 28 were left undiscovered. The aftermath was grim, to say the least, due to the uh, impact of the crash. Well, 300 miles an hour, yeah. Right into the side of a volcano. The head inspector, Jim Morgan, led a team tasked with the unbelievable job of identifying victims. Record keeping had to be meticulous because of the number of uh, the victims in the fragmented state of human remains. And so they had to be particularly careful to identify as best they could the victims for the coroner. This exercise resulted in 83% of the deceased passengers and crew eventually being identified, sometimes from evidence such as a finger capable of yielding a print or keys in somebody's pocket. Here's a brief excerpt from Jim Morgan's report. And again, it's pretty graphic. Quote, the fact that we all spent about a week camped in polar tents amid wreckage and dead bodies, maintaining a 24-hour schedule says it all. We split the men into two shifts, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, and recovered with great effort all the human remains at the site that we could find. Many bodies were trapped under tons of fuselage and wings, and much physical effort was required to dig them out and extract them. Initially, there was little water on the site, and we had only one bowl to wash our hands before eating. The water was black. In the first days on site, we did not wash plates and utensils after eating. We just handed them off to the next shift because we were unable to wash them. I couldn't eat my first meal because it was a meat stew. 
our polar clothing became covered in black human grease, a result of burns of the bodies. Oh. Later in the process, seagulls were eating the bodies in front of us, causing us much mental anguish, as well as destroying the chances of identifying the corpses. Because of this, we had to pick up all the bodies and body parts and create 11 large piles of human remains around the crash site in order to bury them under snow to keep the birds off them. Mm. Immensely exhausting work. As the weather cleared, the helicopters were able to get back and we were then able to hook piles of bodies into cargo nets under the helicopters and then the remains were taken to McMurdo Science Station. Since the crash over 40 years ago, McMurdo Station has garnered a reputation for its spectral phenomena. Unsettling sounds of invisible footsteps and sightings of phantoms and an overarching sense of discomfort prevail, often linked to the spirits of those who perished in New Zealand's most notorious aerial catastrophe. The fact that uh, the recovered remains were temporarily housed at McMurdo is a detail that many believe to be the origin of these ghostly disturbances. There was a uh, worker there, an American worker named Allie Barden, and she attests to a lot of paranormal activity, especially within the confines of Building 174, which currently is a depot for hazardous substances. That was where they stored the bodies four decades ago. I would imagine that just mentally... You're going to have ghosts like yeah. that's that's a lot to deal with emotionally. It, it certainly is, even though it's been over 40 years knowing that that building housed mm. all of those remains has got to leave some sort of a, an emotional or psychological uh, scar or impact. Others have cited what they say appear to be phantoms walking across the frozen plains. And spirits are said to roam the station's gymnasium. And there is one particular spectral visitor that allegedly haunts the local coffee shop. But most of the sightings are reported in Building 174, a secure storage building. Upon entry, one witness described an immediate sense of strangeness followed by the distinct sound of footsteps overhead, pacing from one end of the building to the other. After this experience, the worker alerted a colleague who had similar experiences. It was not an unusual experience. It happened to her all of the time, and many of her co-workers had very similar unexplained experiences at McMurdo. Reports of strange occurrences and sightings at McMurdo continue to this day, with Building 174 being the epicenter. Are these experiences real paranormal phenomenon or simply, as you said, the imaginations of people who are isolated in one of the most desolate places on the planet for months at a time? Mm. Either scenario is plausible when considering the wreckage of Air New Zealand Flight 901. The majority of it remains strewn across the side of Mount Erebus along with the remains of 28 bodies that were never recovered. My source information, history.com, the Associated Press, and Wikipedia. I'm sorry that was so dark. 
It was very dark. And I can't help but think like so often, and I don't know the particulars in this case, but so often touristy type trips like that aren't the best at recording like who's on board Mm. and because it's not always something that's planned ahead it's not like a regular flight where you have a very you know strict protocol sometimes it's just oh this couple showed up and they want to go on this trip and you let them on it was later disclosed uh, at the trial, at the, in the investigation, in the trial afterwards, that uh, some of the data that uh, I kind of alluded to earlier mm-hmm. that was incorrect was purposely altered because they were afraid that the uh, United States air traffic control would make them change their flight plan, and oh. they didn't want to do that. Oh, no. And so all of these things added up to... So they knew there was a risk. Dis- disaster. And they're... So they knew that that this was potentially risky. Yes. Oh, that's awful. And one of the unanswered questions is why they didn't see the volcano more quickly. Because when they developed the film of some of the sightseers, the victims, some of their cameras survived. When they developed the film, the last pictures taken, they were down below the cloud level and Everything was very, very clear. Mm. So they must have been distracted on top of all of this. I'm looking at pictures right now of Mount Erebus, and it really does. The, every picture just looks like a picture of the inside of a cool container. <laughs> I don't know how you fly in that. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Aerial refueling, also referred to as in-flight refueling, is the process of transferring aviation fuel from one military craft to another during flight. It's most commonly done with what's called a rigid boom system, as well as extremely high-tech software. But the first aerial refueling happened in 1921, when Wesley May carried a five-gallon can of gas on his back while climbing out of one airplane and into another. Hi, Kat and Jethro. Carolyn writes, Today, I'd been sewing while listening to episode 587 Halloween special. I finished one project and needed to take a break, so I paused the episode. My little Yorkie, Snooky, and I went to my room and got comfy. I restarted the episode at the beginning of the beautiful Sri Lankan story about the beloved Teddy, the little dog. My dog, Snooky, was lying quietly at the foot of my bed, but as soon as the narrator got to the part about Teddy's appearance at the base of the hamper and then apologized for his voice cracking, Snooky looked up at me and started crying. She only cried as he was telling that part of the story. She doesn't ever respond to TV, podcasts, or other media, so this sent chills through my body. Keep flying your freak flags. Carolyn. Also, I want to point out that we've received so far about 47 yam recipes. So, yeah, but you know what? I'm also getting a lot of sweet potato recipes and I'm sorry, they're not the same. And I know how to make sweet potatoes. I mean, don't stop. I still want to. (laughs) You ungrateful yam snob. Trey sent us a message. That thing in the middle from episode 75 was about weird things people have left in an Uber. I have them beat. A hip. A hip? I have no idea where it came from, but I found a titanium hip replacement in the back one night. (laughs) I didn't immediately recognize what it was, obviously. It was clean and new. Well, that's good. So it didn't just fall out. (laughs) Right. So my best guess is that it was a salesman model or something. Hmm. I do live in Arizona, so that's a pretty common surgery, but... uh, (laughs) Plenty of other things over the years, but probably that was the weirdest. (laughs) That is glorious. Thank you, Trey. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only podcast you're listening to at this exact moment. Don't think we don't notice things like that. This is The Box of Oddities. We are going to travel about 9,000 miles north. Of where we are right now? or No, of Mount Erebus. Oh, okay. All right. The Chukchi Peninsula is a prominent landmass located at the northeastern part of Russia and extends into the Chukchi C. It's situated between the Bering Strait to the east and the Gulf of Andir to the west. The peninsula is named after the indigenous Chukchi people who have inhabited the region for thousands of years. The Chukchi Peninsula is characterized by a diverse landscape, tundras, mountains, coastal plains. The terrain is largely rugged and very sparsely populated. There are a few settlements here and there with limited infrastructure. The region is subarctic. It's got long, cold winters and relatively cool summers, so it's pretty much cold. Historically, the area has been important for traditional activities like reindeer herding, fishing, and hunting. The indigenous Chukchi people have a deep connection to the land and continue to maintain cultural practices. And this area is known for its wildlife. It serves as a critical habitat for various species, including polar bears, walruses, whales, and migratory birds. You had me at reindeer, but now... I know. Along the frozen coastal waters of this peninsula, some 130 miles from Alaska, the Chukchi people, who still heavily rely on local wildlife as a food source, hunt. In December of 1984, a hunter in the Chukchi Peninsula's ice-covered coastal waters discovered a herd of up to 3,000 beluga whales. Wow. Beluga whales. Wow. I know. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? No. Incredible. They're majestic creatures. They sure are. But 3,000 of them? Right. Sensory overload? They're also known as belugas or polar dolphins in Russia. Initially, the hunter and his party, as you can imagine, were pumped because this is a huge food source. Belugas are nutritious and valued, but they soon realized that something was amiss. Belugas routinely hunt below the ice, but they are mammals that need to surface to breathe. And these hunters realized that these belugas were trapped. Oh my God. 
the presence of such a large number of beluga whales in that particular area remains a mystery. One prevailing theory suggests that the whales, either as a collective or in smaller groups, were pursuing their prey, perhaps a school of cod, and unwittingly ended up in the strait. Strong winds then caused thick chunks of ice to drift up to 12 feet in thickness that then accumulated. And these ice formations proved insurmountable for the whales. So they were trapped under the ice or they were trapped in the straits by the ice? They were trapped in a very small area of the strait by the ice. Okay, so they could still breathe? They could. Okay, because I was getting really claustrophobic thinking about that. I mean, soon they won't be able to. Being trapped within rapidly closing ice meant certain death for the animals. Without human intervention, these, these belugas would die. There were only narrow gaps between the ice chunks that these belugas could breathe through. So Ooh. they were able to surface little by little, but with that many and with the ice co- closing in on them, it was becoming a very serious situation. Although these whales have the ability to swim beneath the ice and escape, the distance at this point had become too far for them to risk it. So they remain trapped which is what ha- would happen to me because there's no way in hell I could say to myself, okay, deep breath, let's go. Oh, nope. Now, as news of the stranded whales spread among the local community, people came out. One, it's inc- it's, it must be an incredible sight to see 3,000 beluga whales, right? But also, these people are so connected with the nature of this region They knew they needed to help, so they provided frozen fish for sustenance. They were clearing as much ice as they could to create more breathing space for the whales. This went on for weeks. Oh, my God. Where locals would come out day after day after day and smash open ice holes for these belugas to breathe. And can you imagine collecting enough frozen fish to feed 3,000 belugas? (laughs) Now, there are reports that some of these whales were taken by hunters. It's unclear if it's as they were dying anyway, or if they just took advantage of the situation. Because like I said, there were 3,000. Who's going to miss a couple of belugas here and there? Now, these people are doing their very best, and these efforts are valiant. But the encroaching ice made it increasingly difficult to help these trapped animals. So in early February 1985, a call for assistance was made to the icebreaker Moskva, a notable Soviet vessel named after Moscow, weighing 13,000 tons, raced against time and plummeting temperatures to reach the whales before they succumbed to suffocation or starvation in the diminishing pockets of open water. This rescue operation garnered huge attention, with the New York Times describing it as a highly unusual endeavor. Mm. With the assistance of spotter planes guiding their way, the Moskva icebreaker, under the command of Captain Kovalenko, embarked on a rescue mission. But according to whale scientists, when the Moskva first reached the area... Captain Kovalenko wanted to call off the mission because the ice was too thick. Ooh. As I said, in some places it was 12 feet thick. 
And by the mid-1980s, this icebreaker, the Moskva, was already described as being definitely past its prime. So they're asking this old ship to do this incredible thing, and it feels very incredible journey to me, you know, with the golden retriever. Sure, yeah, right. But after the captain saw that as they delayed, whales were rapidly perishing, they decided to move forward. Equipped with a full tank of fuel, the Moskva fearlessly plunged into the icy terrain, aiming to save the stranded beluga. Meanwhile, helicopters hovered above the breathing holes, dropping fresh fish to nourish the whales during the operation. This is an incredible scene. Isn't it? Wow. Initially, the colossal ship carved out expansive pools of water just to give the whales a little more room to be while they were trying to complete this task. After a couple of days of incredible effort, the Moskva and its crew finally reached the vicinity of the whales. And as they were opening up these pools, you could see the whales behaving differently. They were obviously very pleased with this extra room. The whales were showing signs of excitement, venturing through the expansive gaps. The New York Times stated that their joy was evident as they engaged in playful behavior, emitting sounds of delight, such as whistling, squealing, and snorting. The whales were relishing this opportunity to be out in the open water and gradually recuperate. But the idea was they didn't just need more space. They needed to be led back out to the open sea. However, the presence of the Moskva, this icebreaker, and its thunderous roar of engines and deafening propellers was overwhelming and frightening for these whales. They're already stressed out, dude. Consequently, they hesitated to follow the vessel toward their ultimate freedom. The icebreaker's attempts to maneuver to and from the herd proved fruitless, and progress seemed elusive. Things were getting very discouraging. Meanwhile, whales are dying. So the Moskva has this idea. We'll start little by little, clearing ice, making a path, go back to the whales. Make a little more path, go back to the whales. Make a little more path, go back to the whales. And the idea is they're trying to show these whales, like, this is where we're going, right? We're, we're heading this way. Let's go. But the whales don't know that this is the plan. And it's tough because they're whales. Not only that, but they're in a very stressful state right now. Exactly. It's, it's asking a lot. It is. So one day... Someone on the Moskva recalled that he remembered seeing that marine mammals often respond to music. Something about dolphins liking Mozart or something like that, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So with this in mind, the crew initiated a harmonious offering. They started blaring classical music out of the speakers of their boat. The ship's top deck was blaring various genres of music at first, popular tunes, to classical music. The crew's intention was to establish a connection with the beluga and to help them comprehend the purpose behind their actions. Like we're not just scootling about here, guys. We we're on a we're a team. Let's go. Undeterred, the crew embarked on repeated expeditions through the treacherous ice. Again, path, belugas, path, belugas, classical music blaring. 
The New York Times shared details published by a Russian newspaper. Reflecting on the operation, it was described as an experimental undertaking. So they settled on classical music, but you said that they played lots of different types of music at first? Yes. Okay, so we also are learning that belugas prefer Wagner over Pussy Riot. Yeah, but they prefer Pussy Riot's hats. Well, they're not stupid. Interestingly, over time, the classical music did seem to strike a chord with the belugas, Uh prompting the herd to gradually trail behind the ship. Amazing. Kilometer by kilometer, the animals were following their unconventional guide. Captain Kovalenko, the key figure in the operation, provided insight into their strategic approach. He explained, our tactic is this. We back up. Then we advance again into the ice. We make passage and we wait. And we repeat this several times. The belugas started to understand our intentions and follow the icebreaker. Thus, we move kilometer by kilometer. Their journey was filled with incredible challenges and guided by just hope and persistence and ingenuity for sure. And it culminated in a triumph. The arduous operation spanned several weeks. Wow. But by the end of February 1985, an estimated 2,000 whales had successfully reached the vast open ocean and freedom. What an incredible story. I know. And to think that they stuck with it for as many weeks as they did. Yeah. Because it must have been extremely frustrating when you break through all of that ice and you're like, come on, guys, let's go. And they're like, no, no, you're a Cold War icebreaker. <laughs> I don't trust you. No, thank you. And when you consider this was not a cheap endeavor. This is an icebreaker that they have to fill with fuel over and over again. They've got helicopters dropping how many pounds of frozen fish. Right, and right. Yeah. Um, they estimate that it cost about $80,000 to save these belugas. And that was 1985, so that works out to a little under $230,000 today. Well, money well spent, but a lot of money. Absolutely. And I just, I love it so much. It was just one of those things that everyone just decided, that. well, this is what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And it makes me a little emotional. And I think that... It's really the equivalent of setting aside a room in your apartment for all of like, the stray dogs in Cuenca. <laughs> the discussion that we had right before we turned the mics on. Yeah. There's a lot of stray dogs here in, in Cuenca, Ecuador, and Kat wants to bring every one of them home. I don't think we've posted the video of you feeding pizza to stray cats. No, we haven't. No. You got to send that to me. All right. I will. Anyway, I got my information from (laughs) rbth.com, classicfm.com, ZME Science, and The Times. Well, that's cool. We both had stories that took place in colder regions, but yours had a much warmer ending than mine. Plus beluga whales. Yeah, they're adorable. I'd like to hug a beluga. Do you think they'd let me? I think we could arrange that. Well, it'd be great. I wanted to mention, we got an email asking about merch and if we could still uh, ship merch because we're in Ecuador. And uh, our our merch is through another company, so we don't have we don't have to touch yeah. it at all. Right. So you don't have to worry about that. You just go to Tee Public, 
or the link on our website, theboxofoddities.com. And that way, I mean, we don't have to pack stuff and... Right. No, you're all set. And with the holiday season upon us, what better way to celebrate your freakdom? Than a pork taint shirt. And we have that design available on coffee mugs, too. (laughs) So you can sip right out of your pork taint. That sounded terrible. (laughs) Never say that again. (laughs) Let's wrap this up before it goes sideways. We'll see you next time, you guys. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.